Mark 3.20 says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Luke, and it's a privilege to be able to open the scriptures with you this morning. I was in Chicago this past week for a couple days, part of a kind of a pastor mentoring group that I'm, that I'm part of, and we were in Chicago. We get together a couple times a year. I got to see one of my old friends from college who uh, just got to have dinner with him one night, and he asked me, he said, hey, what are you teaching at church? And I said, um, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And he said, well, how, how's it going? What are, you, what are you learning from it? What are you getting from it? And I said, you know what just I love about the Gospel of Mark is that you can't get away from Jesus. Like he just is tenacious in his claims to be king, his claims to be Lord. And, and you can read other parts of Scripture, and other parts of Scripture are important and are inspired by God. But in focusing on a gospel, there's just something about having to come face to face week after week after week as you keep seeing who Jesus is. And that's some of what we're trying to do here. In fact, all throughout the gospel of Mark, people are kind of trying to figure out, who is this Jesus guy? Who is he really? In fact, in the middle part of the book, Jesus will look at his disciples and he'll say to them, he'll say, you know, what's everyone saying about who I am? And they'll give a couple answers. And then he'll say, well, who do you say that I am? And that question in the middle of the book really is kind of a, a thread that runs through this whole book. And so I hope that as we're going through this, and I hope that even today, you're asking yourself the question, who do I say that Jesus is? Who is he really? What is he about? Mark's trying to help you see that Jesus is the Son of God. He tells you that right in the very beginning of the, the book, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark is after. That's what he's talking about. And he's crafted this account of Jesus' life in a very intentional way to try to help you see who Jesus is. We said from the beginning that, that this is like a documentary. The, the reason we have four Gospels is it's as though there's all this raw footage of Jesus' life. And, and God appointed four documentary filmmakers and said, make a film that tells the story of Jesus. And if you did that, you inevitably would have four slightly different accounts that are emphasizing different things. And so Mark is this skilled storyteller and filmmaker trying to help you see that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Well, today, he's gonna intro- I'm going to introduce you to a, a technique that, that Mark uses in his writing, in his storytelling, um, that I find to be fascinating. It's a technique, actually, that he uses nine different times in his gospel. Today's the first one. Each of them communicates something really significant. Um, it's this technique that, that scholars and commentators have called the Markin sandwich. The Markin sandwich. This is the first one, and essentially here's how it works. Is, is Mark will tell kind of what seems to be a unified story, uh, but in the middle of it, he'll insert another story that doesn't seem to be connected to the rest of it. So in this particular account, we, here's, here's the Markin sandwich we're going to look at today. Verses 20 and 21 is the first part. Jesus' family is seeking to seize him. So think about that as kind of the first piece of bread. Then the second piece of bread we get in verses 31 to 35, where Jesus' family is looking for him, right? See how those two things are connected. Those are kind of similar. And, but in the middle of it, Mark inserts this other story. He inserts this story about the scribes from Jerusalem who say that Jesus' work is demonically uh, inspired and demonically comes about. And you go, well, why, what's Mark doing here? Like, Maybe you've even ever, you can actually miss this if you just read through the gospel pretty quickly. You have to kind of slow down and pay attention. But you have one thing about his family, and then some random story, and then another thing about his family. What happened? Why didn't he just put the family stuff together? It's because of this technique that he does over and over again, nine times. And what he's doing is he's trying to tell you there's something similar between the pieces of bread and the meat. Even though these stories seem disconnected, even though these stories seem random and don't seem like they communicate anything similar, they actually do. And so he uses that technique, and we're going to get a little bit of a taste of this Markin sandwich today, all right? So we're going to dive into that in just a moment. Uh, As we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the way you inspire the Scripture. Thank you for how you help us through it to see Jesus. And God, I pray that today we would, that you would give Uh, our eyes sight, give our ears hearing, help us to hear your word and to see Jesus. God, give me the gift of teaching. Give me the ability to proclaim what you're saying here in this passage. God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this passage, this Markin sandwich is going to tell us two things today. It's going to tell us first, Jesus' true identity, and second, Jesus' true family. That's kind of the thread that runs through this whole deal, is Jesus' true identity, who is he really, and Jesus' true family. How can you be so connected to Jesus that you're not just in a sort of servant-master relationship, but actually a family relationship? That's what Jesus is going to help us see here in this particular passage, all right? So first, Jesus' true identity. A lot of people are wrestling with who Jesus is all throughout this book, and people even today. Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? What kind of answers do you think we'd get if we went over to Santan Mall or we went out to Queen Creek Marketplace and we just kind of randomly harassed people, you know, with a camera or something and said, hey, who do you think Jesus is? Probably get a lot of different answers. I'll bet one of the most common ones we'd get would be, he's a good teacher. He was an influential religious guy. He, he had good morals and he did some important things and he taught some important things. Don't you think that's to be a common answer that we get? That's a very common view of Jesus. So Jesus is fairly respected in the world. You know, the world hates Christians and hates Christianity, but kind of still is okay with Jesus. And most of that is because they think of him as, yeah, he's a good moral teacher. He's like, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or, or Gandhi or, or, you know, whoever. 
But the, the first person that I know of that sort of helped us to see that we, we can't see Jesus as just a good moral teacher is a guy named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a philosopher uh, in Great Britain in the you know, 19th century, or no, 1900s, <laughs> sorry. I always get century and hundreds confused, 1900s. And uh, C.S. Lewis described this idea that you can't see Jesus as just a good moral teacher, that, that the scriptures actually don't give you that option. And in fact, when you look at the Bible, even at passages like this one, what you find is that actually you have a, a, a choice between three options. And none of them is that Jesus is a good human teacher. Either first, you have to go, he's a lunatic, he's crazy, He's saying to be God, and only crazy people do that. Or, or two, you say, well, he's a liar. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to do all these things in the power of God. That's not true. He's a liar. Or third, you say, he's Lord. Lewis called it the trilemma. He's a lunatic, he's the liar, or he's the Lord. Here's how Lewis said it. He said, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. You know what he's saying? Crazy people who claim to be God aren't good. That's bad. Those are cult leader wackos that lead you to drink Kool-Aid and kill yourself. Yeah. And liars who claim they're God and aren't really God aren't good moral teachers. To say that is, is patronizing, Lewis says. It's saying you're not even taking Jesus at his own terms. Take Jesus at his own terms, and what you'll find is you're left with three options. The trilemma, he's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. And actually, we see these all in this particular passage. So the first thing we see is the idea that, that some people here, and amazingly, people really close to Jesus, saw him as a lunatic. Look at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Right? Jesus has been out. He's been doing ministry. He appointed apostles. Now he's going back to his home base. Sure enough, all these people are gathering around just like they always do. He's, he's so, uh, he's, his personality is pulsating, and people have to be drawn near to him. In verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, a couple words just to define here. This word seize is a word that means to hold, to control. Mark uses it in chapter 14 to talk about being arrested, right? They're trying to physically grab Jesus. We got to get a hold of this guy. We got to get this guy under control. Why? Because he's out of his mind. He's lost his senses. He's going berserk. He's nuts. Think about that. The family of Jesus trying to seize, trying to grab, trying to hold Jesus, thinking he's crazy. Now, they're probably feeling pretty embarrassed about some of the things that Jesus is saying. They're probably feeling, I want to save some face. And they say, we got we to gotta get this under control. He, he's, he's crazy. Now, listen, why would they think that? Because only crazy people claim to be God. Right? Right? I mean, I heard the story of these two prisoners. You know, they had both done these, you know, totally bizarre crimes, and they were in this kind of psych uh, aspect of, of the prison. And, and the one just over and over kept saying, I'm Michelangelo, I'm Michelangelo, I'm Michelangelo, I'm Michelangelo. And the guy with him said, well, who told you that? First guy said, God did. Second guy said, no, I didn't. 
right? This is, right, you, you walk down the street and you, you see crazy people that claim to be God, crazy people that claim to be Jesus, right? This is not a normal thing. If you had a good friend who all of a sudden started saying, I created everything, and I can heal people, and I'm the Lord over what, what day the Sabbath should be, and all these religious regulations. Uh, nothing happens apart from my power. You'd go, we need to have an intervention. <laughs> Let's talk to him, right? And that's what the family of Jesus is doing. They're, they're intervening. They're, they're trying to seize him. They're going, he's, he's lost his mind. He's, he's crazy. Now, this little incident, I think, brings out three really just fascinating and I think pretty important things. The first one is that Jesus, though sinless and holy, was also incredibly normal. I mean, wouldn't you think that if there was a guy who was sinless, who never did anything wrong, that his whole family from the whole time would be like, oh yeah, he's really weird. He's always been saying stuff like this. Right? Don't you think that Jesus in high school probably got voted most likely to claim to be Messiah? Because <laughs> we were like, I, yeah, I knew that guy was weird. He was a little off. You know, He was never doing anything wrong. Right? And, and, and this is amazing to me. The people closest to Jesus who saw his sinless, sinlessness also experienced his normalcy, his being an ordinary person, so much so that when he claims to be God, they go, ah, I don't know. That's crazy. That blows my mind. See, see we either go, well, I'm going to be normal, right? I'm going to hang out with people, and I'm going to do my thing, and I'll go to the party, and I'll do the whatever. And we don't really think about how do I be obedient, how do I be holy, how do I be sinless? We just go, yeah, I, I want to fit in. I want to be normal. Or we go the other way. We go, well, I'm, you know, I, I want to do the right thing. I want to obey. I want to be holy. I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not hanging out with them. And we have no idea how weird we are. Jesus is both totally holy and totally normal. So normal that even his own family goes, this guy seems crazy. That's amazing. Second thing that I think this shows us, and this is remarkable, is I think this is evidence actually of the resurrection of Jesus. Because one of the brothers, one of the family members of Jesus here that is opposing him is a guy named James. Now James, if you read the book of Acts, goes on to be one of the key leaders in the church and goes on to actually write a book of the Bible very creatively titled James. And, and James is the brother of Jesus. So one of the brothers here that in verse 21 is saying he's out of his mind, in uh, verse 31 and 32 is trying to grab him again. One of those brothers eventually stops saying he's crazy and starts saying he's the son of God. How'd that happen? Let me ask you this. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God? he'd probably have to rise from the dead, right? And the fact that, that James, the brother of Jesus, the one who was closest to him, who saw him in all his normalcy, eventually stops saying he's crazy and starts worshiping him. I think that's evidence of the resurrection. The third thing that this little story tells us is that the scriptures are not a, a made-up version of accounts to try to consolidate power by the early church but that they're actually true. 
Think about this for a second. The people on the beginning and end of this story, in the bread of the sandwich, the people that are opposing Jesus are his brothers, including James, who's now a leader in the church by the time Mark writes this, and his mother, Mary. Now, don't, isn't there a party that goes, Mary, do you remember when that angel showed up and told you, like, he'll save his people from their sins? And, like, so, so there's an amazing thing there. But by the time Mark writes this, he's writing in a context where, where, where James and Mary are significant figures in the early church. Right, and some people will say, well, the scriptures, it's all just, it's all made up. It's just a, a, an attempt of those who are in power to try to consolidate their power, and, and it, none of it really happened. Well, listen, if you were trying to just consolidate your power, wouldn't you want things written that would make you look good? But here, Mark is telling you that these key leaders in the church actually looked really bad. Why? Because it happened. It's true. These are accounts that can be trusted. They're not doctored to make you politically believe something else. They're what really took place. But their family, going, this, this is embarrassing. This is bizarre. Jesus is crazy. They think he's a lunatic. Well, then there's a group of people, and they, they fall more in the liar category. They think he's a liar. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem... We're saying, now pause there for just a second, uh, this is significant. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing all his ministry in Galilee. That's an area north of Jerusalem. It's kind of like, you know, the backwoods, the, you know, people in Jerusalem didn't really respect what was going on in Galilee. But they start hearing about all this stuff that Jesus is doing. The word is spreading. And so they send some scribes up. Scribes here, it says, who came down from Jerusalem. They go, they go, we're going to give an official verdict here, right? You folks in Yuma, like, We'll come from Scottsdale and tell you what's really happening here, right? That's kind of what's going on. Well, what's their verdict? They, they see what Jesus is doing. They've heard about it. Do they say he's nuts? No. Why? Well, because he's clearly done some powerful things. They can't argue with the miracles. They can't say, oh, well, that, that, that paralytic guy didn't really stand up and walk because everyone saw that he did. They can't say, oh, that man with the withered hand, that didn't really happen because it really did. The people who were oppressed by demons were clearly freed. So they couldn't go, oh, this is crazy. Instead, what they did is they said, you know, he claims to do this in the name of God, but he's lying. Look at what they say. Scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. That's the king of demons, prince of demons. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So this is what they're saying. They're saying, you know what? I can't deny the miracle, but the miracle he's doing, the power he's using, that's dark power. That's unclean. He's, he's filled with unclean spirits. He's filled with the prince of demons. That's how he's doing it. Jesus comes and he says, really? Okay, let's just, let's think about that for a second, Jesus says. Look at verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Right? He's going, guys, this doesn't, this logically doesn't make sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus is going, guys, this just, just logically, it doesn't make sense. You're saying 
that Satan is filling me to diminish the power of Satan. Why? Why would he do that? That's crazy. Right? What's happening through this, as, as lame men are walking, as, as deaf men are hearing, as blind men are seeing, as demon-possessed people are being freed, what's happening is that's happening is the kingdom of God is coming and life is coming. Why would Satan work against himself to make that happen? Jesus says that doesn't make any sense. Now, here's something that you need to, to wrestle with, especially if you're one of these kind of people that says, you know what, I just have a hard time believing, but you know what, if I could see the miracles, if I could see the miracles, then I'd believe. Really? These guys saw the miracles. They had to, right, notice, none of them say, he didn't really heal that guy. They say he healed that guy, but he used kind of dark magic to do it. So just because you see the miracle doesn't mean you'll believe. One of the most amazing accounts of that is John 11. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He'd been in the tomb enough time that he stank, it says. And Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out. And you know what the next verse says? Therefore, some who saw it believed. Some? Well, what, what do you need to see? Right, and so what this shows you is that the reason you're not willing to embrace Jesus isn't because you haven't seen the miracles. It's not because you don't have enough proof. It's because there's something in your heart that's unwilling to submit to him. That's what it is. Is he a lunatic? That's what the family thought. Is he a liar? That's what the scribes thought. What does Jesus say about who he really is? He says that he is the Lord. We see this most clearly as he continues, and I'll start back in 26, but 27 is the place where Jesus really explains this. Verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Right? Like, Matt, I think about you. You know, you're a strong guy. You're a big, strong guy. If I was going to come rob your house, I'm not getting very far unless I get you tied up. Right? Well, and your wife's pretty fierce, too, it looks like. <laughs> right? Like, if you're going to rob someone's house and they're in the house, you've got to tie them up. Right? You've you got to hold them. You've got to restrain them. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do it. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus says, listen. You can't possibly drive out the works of Satan unless you are bound, binding up Satan. You have to do that first, right? A strong man has to be overcome by someone stronger. And so Jesus says, I'm not using Satan's power. I'm not filled with the prince of demons. I am stronger than Satan. And what you are seeing as, as, as Satan's goods, his, his hold on the sin and on the darkness and on the pain and on the suffering, as that is being released, what you're seeing is that I'm stronger than him. He's saying, I am the Lord. You can't, you can't do what I'm doing unless you're the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, this makes sense if you think about the world's pain. Think about the pain in the world. Think about the suffering. 
Think about the broken relationships and think about the bitterness and think about the war and think about the hatred and think about all that's wrong in the world. What's the answer? What can't be? Jesus, just teach us more. Educate us more. Listen, I love education. I believe in education. I'm pursuing an advanced degree to get more educated and to learn more. Education is wonderful, but education isn't the answer. And Jesus isn't just a teacher. He didn't come to just teach the darkness away. He came to destroy it and overcome Satan. He is Lord. Did he teach? For sure. Are there things to learn? For sure. The world now is more educated than we've ever been. Does anyone think it's better off? Yeah, a little. In a big way? Is the kingdom of, of Satan sort of running for cover because we're all so enlightened? No. Not at all. Jesus came to bind Satan. But think about this. How did he do it? How did Jesus bind and destroy Satan? He did it by, on the cross, allowing Satan to bind and destroy him. He is the stronger man. But when his disciples looked at him on the cross, he didn't look very strong. He looked weak. And Satan had a good laugh. But as Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that he is Lord over Satan, sin, and death. And he bound Satan and he is freeing us from the works of the enemy. He's plundering the house of the enemy because Jesus is Lord. That's who he claims to be. You can't say, oh, he's just a good teacher. You can't say, oh, he's crazy. You can't say, oh, he's a liar. He's the Lord. But Jesus knows not everyone is going to embrace that. Some people are going to so harden themselves, even, even the, the ice that these scribes are standing on, it's so thin because they've so hardened themselves, they're in real danger here. And so Jesus gives a warning, a stern and serious warning. It's a warning that actually has led a lot of people to go, what is he really saying? What does this mean? Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter... Let me just pause there for a second. Did you hear that? All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies you utter. You may come here and go, I've, I've sinned too much. God can never accept me. God can never love me. I've done too much wrong. I've been too immoral. I've been, you know, I, my standard for myself is here. And I realized I'm here and I could never meet the gap. That's true. You can't meet the gap. But your sins can be forgiven. All of them, Jesus says. Verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus says, you can do all kinds of sin, you can blaspheme in all kinds of ways, you can say all kinds of bad things about God, that's what blasphemy is. You can, you can blaspheme him with your words, with your life, and you can be forgiven. But listen, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there isn't forgiveness. So we go, okay, what's that? What's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I would like to avoid that. 
right? And I've actually talked to people who've been really kind of broken in their own heart and soul because they've, they've read this verse, they know about this verse. And like, I remember talking to, to a woman one time and she was just distraught because when she was a, a teenager, some moron said to her, hey, I triple dog dare you to say I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. She did it, then read this. Oh no, I, did I do it? I, you know, I can't be forgiven. I want to be forgiven. I want to love the Lord, but I said that back then. Is that what he's talking about? No. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about, the answer is verse 30. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. They're saying, all this good that he's doing is actually empowered by evil. It's not good at all. It's not from God at all. They're hardening their hearts continually against him and calling the good thing evil. Right, And that's something Jesus says here, he, notice, he doesn't say, guys, you would have committed this sin. He's saying, watch out. This is a warning. He's saying, be careful. If you continue down this path of dismissing the good work of God, the good work of the Holy Spirit in me, and attributing it to evil, and hardening yourself against me, watch out. You won't be forgiven if you do that. Why? Because you'll never want to come to Christ. You'll constantly see his good work as something else. So has the girl who said, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, has she, has she blasphemed the Holy Spirit? No. And if you're worried about this, here's what I'll tell you. Trust in Christ. But if you're going, Jesus is stupid. You know, all this, all this, all this work, all these testimonies, all this life change, you know, that's just, you know, that's just emotionalism and psychology and, and just, you know, sociology and human behavior and this is all stupid. Careful, careful. Jesus is not a lunatic. He's not the liar. He's the Lord. That's his identity, his true identity. Now, a little bit briefer, (laughs) Jesus' true family. Jesus' true family. This is an amazing way that this passage finishes. What it tells us is that you cannot just see Jesus as, you know, you're a servant and he's the Lord, but you can actually be in his family. His true family. Okay, well, who is his true family? Well, it's clearly not the people who are blaspheming the Holy Spirit by denying his work and attributing it to evil. But amazingly, it's also not his physical family. Why? Because instead of letting Jesus take charge of them, they're trying to take charge of him. Look at verse 31. This is the second piece of bread now. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Seeking you. That word means to try to take charge of, to try to control. It's the same word that's used back in chapter 1 when Jesus is praying, and Peter comes and says, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Jesus, we have an agenda for you. Snap with it. We have big plans for your life. And Jesus says, about these family members, these physical family members, his mother and his brothers, who are seeking to control him. What does he say? Verse 33. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Listen, you're you're not in my family if you're trying to control me. If you're embarrassed about me, if you're not willing to see who I really am and and surrender to me, you're not my family. That's an amazingly severe statement, isn't it? And yet it follows 
with an incredible invitation. Look at verse 33, or verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So who's Jesus' true family? It's not those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and it's not those who try to take charge of Jesus. It's those who let Jesus take charge of them. Those who say, you're the Lord, I'll do your will. Sorry about that. There's a song we're going to sing in just a moment after we celebrate communion called All I Have is Christ. There's a little line in it, and we'll sing it twice, actually. It's the only part of the song we'll sing over. I think that's important. And here's what this line says. It says, O Father, use this ransomed life in any way you choose. O Father, use this ransomed life in any way you choose. That's a big thing to sing. That's saying you're not just a good teacher. And I don't think you're crazy, and I don't think you're a liar. I think you're the Lord, and I want to let you do whatever you want to do with my life. Listen, if you, in your heart, by faith, can say that, Father, use this ransom life. You ransomed it. When you became weak on the cross to overcome Satan, you bound the strong one because you're stronger, and you ransomed me. You bought me. You purchased me. Father, use this ransomed life in any way you choose. When you say that, what you're saying is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus' true identity, he's the Lord. He's the king. Jesus' true family, those who accepted and trusted and follow him. Now, in case you haven't missed it, or in case you have missed it, I want to just make sure we're clear on the sandwich, right? Because I started with the sandwich. I made a big deal of that. How do these things relate? Right, you got these two pieces of bread of the family. You've got the scribe saying that Jesus is demonic. How do these passages connect? What do these stories mean? Here's the bottom line of these stories. Even well-intended disbelief is as bad as hostile rejection. What do these stories have in common? They both have the idea of rejecting Jesus on his own terms, right? The scribes say, nope, can't have it. And the family says, this is embarrassing. Let's, let's get him out of the way. And in both cases, there's unbelief. There's rejection. There's not a willingness to say, Father, use this ransom life in any way you choose. There's a hard-heartedness. One is nice and friendly. Jesus, come on, buddy, you know, bro, let's go. And one is hostile, Beelzebul, you're a demon. Both are rejection. Are you rejecting Jesus? Or will you trust Jesus as Lord? Will you trust him? Will you be able to say, Father, use this ransom life in any way you choose? You're the Lord, you're the King. I'm not going to take charge of you. I'm not going to seek you in a way that says, God, here's my plan for your life. Listen, some of you are in that place right now. Your life is hurting. There's someone in your family that's sick. You're having a hard time getting a job. Things are not going the way you want. And you're bargaining with God. And you're going, God, I've been pretty good here. I've been to church three weeks in a row. 
Come on, God. Guy gets really sweaty up there. It's hard to watch. But I'm hanging in there because, God, you, you got to bless me on the other side of this. And you're bargaining with God and you're dealing with God. Or maybe things have gone wrong and you're mad at God. You think, well, how, 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 would, God, how, how would God let that happen to me? God, you're going to let my mom tell me that I'm the reason she's getting divorced? How are you going to do that, God? That heart, that attitude, whether you're not a Christian or you are, that attitude that says, God owes me, God, don't you know all that I've done? That's rejection of Jesus. That's disbelief in Jesus. And Jesus here invites you to say, trust me. Trust me. Trust that I'm king. Do what I tell you to do, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when you don't see the immediate results from it. Trust me. And if you do that, you'll have the confidence that I'm not just your Lord, I'm your big brother. And I've looked out for you, and I have taken Satan to the mat for you. And together we can call on the name of our Father who loves us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for ransoming our lives in Jesus. And God, I pray now that you would allow us to, by faith, trust that, that, that walking with you and obeying you and surrendering to you is a better plan than trying to be our own God and trying to run our own lives. God, give us faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.